Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Carrier. Turn to the experts. Sam in Dallas, how are you doing today? Hey, Jim, I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing wonderful. It quit raining. It looks like it's nice and cool outside, and I'm inside, you know, nice and dry. I like it. Hey, I've got a quick question for you about water heaters. I've heard two different schools of thought. So I'm talking about new water heaters being installed and then older water heaters that are like 15 years old that have never been flushed or drained or anything. And I've heard that from new construction uh, builders to contractors saying, hey, you know, you got to flush it out once a year. And then I've seen people that have never flushed it out for 20 years flush it out once, and the whole system collapses. Yep. So I would love to hear your uh, thoughts on the right way to handle new or older water heaters. Okay. If you put in a brand-new tank-type water heater, it should be flushed every 6 to 12 months. And what that does is you're flushing out the sediment that builds up in the bottom. If you let it go for two years without flushing it out, at that point, you're pretty much done flushing it out from that day forward. So from then, you just leave it alone and just never worry about it. If it's a gas water heater, you're going to hear it crackle and pop because it's heating up that sediment in the bottom as it's heating up the water. But it's really not causing any problems other than over time it becomes less and less efficient because it has more and more of that sediment to heat up and less water space and you know we talk about it like when you're envisioning this tank that it's it's filling up to 25 percent with sediment and, and all this stuff. We're, we're talking a little layer across the bottom it never amounts to all that much so truthfully on my own house i have never flushed my water heater <laughs> okay it, it it's it's one of those things that why am I going to take the time, waste the water and all that to flush a water heater to maybe gain another year of use out of it? All right. And if you got and and you know if you got a you know you're talking a 20-year water heater that's never been flushed and stuff, that that right there is a good example. Leave it alone. Don't don't do anything. A lot of the tankless type water heaters when they first were coming out, they had to be flushed and, and cleaned and everything once a year. Most of those don't even require flushing anymore. So I, I wouldn't, personally, I wouldn't bother with it. Hey, I appreciate your advice. All right. Take care, Sam. Now, I deal with a lot of equipment. My favorite, by far, when it comes to chop saws and things like that is steel equipment. But they make so much more than just industrial type equipment they make lawn equipment they make stuff for homeowners they make stuff for contractors tree trimmers people like that i've got austin on from casey's lawn equipment on northwest highway in dallas and austin how are you doing today hey man i'm doing excellent how are you sir i am doing wonderful when somebody has like let's use the chainsaw as an example because it really doesn't matter if it's a chainsaw or the combo tool set or or the chop saws they've all got the gas motor well you can get electric motors as well for for the combo sets and different things like that but let's let's stick with gas for just a second what maintenance can the homeowner do themselves to protect that piece of equipment so it's ready to go 
time and time again? So the most effective thing you can do is use a fuel stabilizer of some sort, something that removes uh, ethanol out of the gasoline and water out of the gasoline. Because what you what people don't realize is a lot of times when you buy gasoline straight out of a gas pump, it already has, you know, of course it has ethanol in it, but sometimes it already has water in it. Um, and because of that, what happens is, is when you leave ethanol in these small engines and in these small carburetors, it gums these carburetors up. And when these carburetors get gummed up, then it causes your equipment not to function properly when you need it the most. Yep. Um, and so we always tell everyone that comes there, hey, make sure that you buy some kind of fuel stabilizer and treat your gas. And then on top of that, even possibly buy some ethanol-free gasoline. Um, I know that, you know, there's places outside of the Dallas area that sell it. Um, and so you can buy that or you can buy true fuel, that type of thing. Um, but buy buy something, you know, ethanol-free and buy something for your fuel. That is the most important thing you can do. Uh, and also make sure that when you get done running your chainsaw or, or even your lawnmower, your weed eater, whatever, it, it goes the same for all of them. Make sure, I know this sounds meticulous, but make sure that you run it till it dies. You don't want to leave any kind of gas sitting in your carburetor. Even if it's been treated, you don't want to leave it sitting in your carburetor because we're finding out that even though it's been treated, it sits in there. And for some reason, if, if there's any kind, of, any kind of dirt or anything that was in that gasoline, uh, then it, it can mess, it'll still mess up your carburetors. And then, uh-huh. and then you're frustrated and you're like upset because you're like, well, this, is, this sucks, man. I was trying to just use my stuff, and now here I am, and I can't you know, chop up trees when, when a tree is falling in my driveway. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've gone so, almost to exclusively using the true gas or, or you know, the, the gas that you buy uh, yeah, in the cans cool. because I just don't right. want to have to worry about it anymore. Just a reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. I want to talk real quick about something because... This is something that comes up periodically, and it's how to deal with a contractor when you're having a problem. You know, so often we think that we can just bully through and, uh, you know, make them do what, what we want done. And the harder you dig your heels in and argue with a contractor, more than likely the less you're going to get done. That's just the nature of the beast. Most contractors, I'm not going to say all because it's not everybody, but most contractors, they are contractors because they want to do things their way. They want to run their business their way. And uh, you know what? That's their prerogative. When it comes to the customer service, sometimes uh, there there are some issues with some of them and, and it has to be dealt with. Well, how you, the customer, deal with the contractor can make a difference on how they'll deal with you. If you come in and hit them hard, and I have to admit it, I'm the same way. You come in and hit me hard and say, "I, you will do this and you will do that and you're ripping me off, blah, blah. You're not going to get as far as if you call up and say, hey, I've got this situation. Uh, I wanted to see if there's anything you can do to help me out. And then start talking about what's going on and hear both sides of the story. I mean, there there can definitely be reasons why a contractor can't get something done right away. But if you start griping and tell him it's got to be this way or the highway, he's going down the highway. Because first of all, right now, 
there's a lot of work for contractors out there. Second of all, he didn't go into business for himself to be griped at by people. If he wanted to do that, he'd continue working somewhere else where he had a boss. And yes, you, the customer, are the boss, but he has options of who he works for and doesn't. So my advice to you, if you have an issue with a contractor, before it goes and escalates, call them up, meet with them, go over what the issues are, see what they can do to help out, keep it all nice and civil. You always have the option to escalate this later, but why not start it on good grounds and uh, see what you can get done that way first. And I'm, a, I'm a, I'll give you a, a real example of of one uh, oh probably a month and a half ago where I ended up digging my heels in. We went out to a little old lady's house, and I think she was 85, 88, something like that. I don't remember for sure now. And she had a plumbing issue. She had somebody else come out. They charged her $500 to do absolutely nothing. And I don't mean they didn't know what they were doing. I mean they came out and all they told her was, this can't be done. Well, we came out afterwards, figured out what the problem was, took care of it, and the time and materials and everything, I think, came to $280. Well, her son called me up. And he went through the different people at my office, gets up to me, and he was just raising, pardon the language, three kinds of hell with me because we charged his mom $280 after she had paid somebody else $500. I didn't tell her to bring the wrong person out. We took care of the problem. We had several hours into doing it. The bill was actually reduced quite a bit. It should have been more than it was, but we knew she had paid somebody else, and so we were trying to take care of her. He lived out of state and thought he was going to bully his way through. And he got absolutely nowhere. We'd already taken care of his mom, and I didn't owe him any type of explanation. That's the mindset of a contractor. And yes, like I said, I can be as hard-headed as the next contractor when you hit too hard on something like that. Lawrence in Spring Branch, how are you today? Hey, buddy. Hey, Jim. I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, I got a quick question. Uh, got a beach house and um, it's on stilts and we enclosed the bottom to make it like a utility room and uh, we put in the insulation. We've got a um, small little 6,000 BTU window unit uh, to keep it cool, but I'm still having problems with some minor um, mold mildew that might occasionally grow on the paint and surface areas. It's nothing serious, but it's more of a nuisance. Do you have any tidbits, suggestions as to maybe uh, something that can be done about that? Or do I need the temperature colder or what? We leave it on about 75 degrees. No, 75 should be plenty cool. Um, but you said you're doing this with a window unit? Yes. And you you leave it on all the time? Yes. You know, being a beach house like it is, the humidity levels are just naturally a lot higher there. Uh, You may just have to put in a dehumidifier and be done with it. Ah. 
a little Good stand, idea. A, a little standalone dehumidifier will take the moisture out of the air and and uh, just take care of all the issues that you're having. Okay. Um, my only concern about those dehumidifiers is you're going to have to empty the tray probably well, every couple of days. And all of them come with hoses, and so you can set uh-huh. it up where it can drain out. Ah, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Great, Jim. Good idea. Okie doke. <laughs> well, you can thank like my one. dad for that one because he uses them all the time in places. Oh. I mean, he, oh, he had a, a metal workshop and yep. he, he, with a little storage room out there. He always kept it, and uh, there was no air conditioning in it, and it would keep everything in there just spotless. It's dramatic. Uh, before you run... Um, I do the same thing here in Houston. I went and bought uh, just one of those medium size. I think it's um, uh, 33 quart. Uh, uh, gadgets and yeah. um, dehumidifier. And it is amazing. Uh, my humidity dropped from like, closer to 70 down to closer to high 50s yep yep and it is amazing that 77 degrees feels more like 73 74 degrees absolutely and it costs literally nothing with electric and and of course the more you run it the more you got to empty it but on the average i probably never have to empty it more than every couple of days yeah but it's a great gadget man i highly recommend those for anybody in houston yep absolutely great for garages as well to to maintain tools and stuff uh you know what i think you convinced me i just may put one of those rascals in my garage what a great <laughs> idea Okay, man. Jim, thanks again. I listen to your show faithfully, and I have learned so much from you guys. And um, and I know Houston appreciates you also. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lawrence. I appreciate that. You have You're a great welcome, weekend. Buddy. Yes, sir. Thank you. Shane, how can I help you today? Uh, a emergency backup generator for the whole house. Looks oh, okay. Yeah. Well, in putting in an emergency backup generator, a lot of them are put in with natural gas. Uh, works great. Uh, Storm Guardian generators, I, in fact, we install natural gas lines for them a lot of times. So uh, at Due West, the, the thing to remember on the generators, figure out what you want to run on the generator and size it accordingly, much like an RV you know, you have to have enough generator to run the air conditioner and, and different things. you got to do the same with your house. You can put one in big enough to run the entire house, but is that what you want to do? Some people don't care if they've got the air conditioner. Other people, you know, want the air conditioning, refrigerators, and everything going. So figure that part out first. Then they'll size it accordingly to what you have in the home. And your choices really are going to be either go with natural gas which is the easiest way to go, or go with diesel. You definitely don't want to go with gas because the gas, especially the gas we're using nowadays, just breaks down too fast. Uh, you, you've, you'll be fighting it forever. You can use a diesel, but there again, it's still got to be run on a regular basis and, and things cycled out. So typically the lowest maintenance way to go is with natural gas. Okay. 
Rachel. That's what I appreciate. Thanks. You bet. Yeah, this is the time of year that people start looking at the generators because we're in that time where we're in hurricane season. You never know when the next storm's going to come in. Uh, if you're in North Texas, hey, typically we don't really need generators until storm season as well, but it's a different storm season, spring when when the, and fall when we have the tornadoes come through and tear things up. Uh, and, and usually you're not without power that long in North Texas. Down in the Houston area, though, along the Gulf Coast, when you lose power, you may be without power for two, three, four weeks even when the power goes down after a hurricane. So that's the reason the generators become a lot more critical than in North Texas. This one comes from Thomas in Mesquite, Texas, and he's asking about replacing existing wood fence. We're looking to replace our existing wood fence with a new one. We're looking to go from six feet tall to eight foot tall. Do you recommend any particular company or any reason to stay away from big box stores subcontracting out their bids? What can we expect price per foot for a standard eight foot tall fence? Nothing super fancy. Well, I can't really help you much with the price per foot because it all depends on the terrain they got to put the fence in. But I will tell you this. If you're going to go from a 6 to an 8 foot, you're definitely going to be putting in new posts. They're going to have to go deeper in the ground because there's more wind load on them. Therefore, it's got to be down in the ground further in order to handle the extra wind loads on them. The other thing I will tell you, you typically want to go with metal posts on your fence. Uh, you know, I know wood used to be all the rage and it's what we all used, but nowadays the, the metal fence posts seem to do better. They're easier to install uh, and just give you a lot more flexibility on, on what you're doing as far as getting them plumb and stuff. As far as box stores versus hiring a fence contractor, why do you want to pay the extra upcharge that they're going to have to charge going through the box store. Uh, I know some of the contractors who use the box stores, they'll say, well, the financing that the box stores offer make it easy for people to get the job done. Most contractors offer financing nowadays as well. So that's usually not a big reason. Uh, Because you are correct. That fence is going to be subbed out. Somebody's going to come and build it. The... Typical upcharge is going to be somewhere between 20 and 30% for using the box stores and one of their subs to come in. The problem that I have seen, and you know, a lot of times people think, well, if the box store builds it, if I have an issue, I can go back to the box store. And you can, but they're going to just send you to the sub anyways. Yes, they do have a little more pressure ability to put on the sub to get something fixed, but is it worth that extra 20 to 30%? That's a call you have to make. Jim, great video on foundation watering. He found it. I have a one gallon per hour, 18 inch spacing drip line I put in around my house. You gave twice a day for 15 minutes as a starting point for soaker hose. How do I convert that to my drip system? Thanks, love your show when I get to hear it. Well, it actually takes longer with the drip system 
running than it does with the soaker hoses. Soaker hoses, you know, it's putting out continuous water all the way along it. On the drip irrigation, yours is one gallon per hour. You can get them at half gallon per hour. So it's going to depend on the amount of water that it'll put out. In general, what you need to do is run the system. And typically, if I was going to put in one at one gallon per hour drip emitter that way, I would probably start it at two and a half hours twice a day. Sounds like a lot, but it's really not. And that would get you started. Then periodically, and when I first would start the system, I would do this monthly. Then after the first six months, I'd probably switch it to doing it quarterly. But just take a large screwdriver, stick it in the ground. If you pull it out and the soil is just moist, the irrigation is doing exactly what it should do. If the, the soil is staying expanded and tight against the foundation, you've got it going just the way it should leave it at that setting if you poke it in the ground you pull it out and you get a slurpy sound because it's too wet turn it back cut 30 or 45 minutes off of it if you can't get it in the ground because it's too hard and dry then you need to turn it up add 30 or 45 minutes and again check it in, in the first six months check it every month after that once a quarter should suffice uh, for the settings. And, uh, you know, that in itself is one of the biggest things you can do to avoid foundation problems. Now, one cautionary note when using irrigation systems, if you have trees around your property, you want to make sure that you put root barriers in as well because otherwise the irrigation system will draw more roots towards your foundation and again cause you more foundation problems and you know we had a lot of discussion today on chucking a truck and contractors and stuff like this here's the difference between chucking a truck who thinks he's a contractor and i'm going to kind of upset some of those guys and a contractor a contractor has a legitimate place of business they're not operating out of their truck or out of their garage or out of their home they have a true office with people who answer the phone during the day book appointments and go out and take care of business chucking a truck and they carry insurance general liability workers comp health insurance on their employees all these things that quite frankly cost money chucking a truck is typically a single person working for that business and that yes they may or may not even have the business registered with the state so there's a question if they're even paying the taxes and stuff on it they don't have an office they don't have a work location they simply go out drum up some business and take a check they're not there when you need them to come back and fix something they're not there to take care of problems and it creates problems for all contractors because typically homeowners think that's a contractor as well. If you're wanting to check out a contractor, the first thing you need to do is see if they've got an office, see if they're carrying insurance, and if there's any other person working in that business besides them. And if you get a no to any of those three questions, you got Chuck in a truck. Get somebody else. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.